Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. The word was true, and it concerned a great conflict. He understood the word, having received understanding in the vision. At that time, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine had entered my mouth, and I had not anointed myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The people who were with me did not see the vision, though a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone to see this great vision. My strength left me, and my complexion grew deathly pale, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. But then a hand touched me and roused me to my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, greatly beloved, pay attention to the words that I'm going to speak to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. So while he was speaking this word to me, I stood up trembling. He said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief priests, chief princes, came to help me, and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and have come to help you understand what is to happen to your people at the end of days, for there is a further vision for those days. While he was speaking these words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one in human form touched my lips, and I opened my mouth to speak and said to the one who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, such pains have come upon me that I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For I'm shaking. No strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. He said, do not fear, greatly beloved. You are safe. Be strong and courageous. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? Now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I'm through with him, the prince of Greece will come. But I am to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is no one with me who contends against these princes except Michael, your prince. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to support and strengthen him. As we begin thinking about this chapter, one of the things I want to emphasize is a question that I've asked many times. What is it like to come into the presence of God or one of his messengers? And today, oftentimes in worship, especially when the music has been good, when people feel they've entered into the presence of God, I've described it as a type of ecstasy, a type of, uh, it's a good feeling, it's euphoric. Almost everybody would confess that it's a pleasant experience, that it's something they would want to happen again, that they're blessed by it. That's not the experience of the people in scripture when they come into the presence of God. On every occasion, they have to be told not to be afraid. 
Daniel is an exceptional case. I mean, Daniel really, now he hadn't eaten in a while, at least not good food. I don't know what he's eating, bread and water or whatever. So he's probably in a weakened state, but he can barely stand in this, in this person's presence. And they have to say several times, don't be afraid. But Daniel's not the first that had that experience. But here, Daniel gives us a real visceral image. John in the book of Revelation has a very similar experience to Daniel. I mean, almost all of his energy is sapped. He's terrified. This angel speaking to him, who's the angel Gabriel, has to say to him, um, you know, don't be afraid. You're safe. And Daniel's like, well, I may be safe, but I can't even stand. I'm so drained of energy. I don't think I can even listen to you. And the angel has to strengthen him just to stand in his presence. And because that's what the scriptures say it's like, I dare say few of us have ever really been in his presence, even though we would testify that we have because of what we feel in certain environments. So here we are in uh, Daniel chapter 10. So just a couple things I'm going to focus on. Now, the, the actual communication that Gabriel gives to Daniel comes in chapters 11 and following. So we'll deal with that in future weeks. I just want to deal with this encounter and who these primary players are. So first, Daniel sees this huge vision. This is in verses like four and five. And he sees, um, it's not clear if this is the angel Gabriel he's seeing or somebody else. It's very similar to what John sees as Jesus in the New Testament uh, book of Revelation. But he sees this and he falls to the ground and then the angel comes. Now, maybe the implication is that the one who comes to him, puts his hand on him and encourages is the same one he saw. Very, very possible. Maybe not. But the reason it's described like this with such, I mean, Daniel cannot comprehend what he's seeing. He's a human being with our eyes. So he's interpreting. His brain is doing the best it can to interpret what he's seeing. And he's, this is all he can, but this is more or less what he sees is indescribable. It's, it's, it's not possible to, to capture it. What would this even look like? But that's what he encounters just like the Israelites on the mountain, it humbles him, it terrifies him, and he falls to the ground. And then the angel is muted. If this is the angel or whoever he was looking at hides themselves. And the angel is a form, Gabriel is in a form now that he can interact with, though he's still incredibly weak. And he begins talking to him and he gives us some crazy details, right? So Daniel's been fasting for three weeks, we've been told, a type of fast. And he's got no answer from the Lord. And suddenly the angel comes and says, you know, I was sent as soon as you started to pray. The Lord heard you three weeks ago. The reason it took me so long, though, is I got tied up fighting the prince of Persia. Now, I want to get into what that means. The word for prince in Hebrew, sar, is the word. It's a pretty common word. It's used mostly of humans. It just means a leader. Sometimes in the Bible, it's translated captain, sometimes chief, sometimes king, sometimes leader, sometimes ruler. It's used of pagan nations. It's used of Israelite leaders. It's a different word than king, which is melech uh, in Hebrew, but it's, it's pretty much any kind of a leader. Judges are sometimes called these. It's a very common word. So we could very simply read Gabriel as saying, I was, I mean, he's a spiritual being, but somehow he might have been caught up fighting a real physical king. Now, the word prince is bizarre because usually you would call it the king of Persia if it's the leader. So maybe prince is a slightly unusual term, but maybe it's just a person that he's talking about. But it seems pretty clear as you move through the text that that's not what's at stake. Because he says that the prince 
of Israel, of Daniel's people, a being called Michael, helps him as he was trying to help Michael. And then at the end there, he says, this is in verse 21, there is no one who, no one with me who contends against these princes, except Michael, your prince. And this figure of Michael has been interesting in the history of the church. Splinter sects that are not Christian because of their beliefs about God, like Jehovah's Witnesses, believe that this is Jesus. Michael is Jesus. He's not, as far as we can tell scripturally, because of how the New Testament uses the term. But Michael is significant. So we have Michael, who is a chief prince. The Hebrew word there is the word for first. First prince. And the word is prince, leader. Who is he? Well, lots of work is done in the scriptures about him. This is the only text in the Old Testament where this particular figure by this name is mentioned, but he gets picked up in the New Testament. So look with me at Jude. Jude only has one chapter. So it's verse nine. Jude verse nine. Now Jude is quoting from a pseudepigraphical text. Um, it's not in the scriptures. It's most likely a book called, I think, um, Life of Moses, I think is most likely where this comes from. And so it's not an authoritative text. It's never been accepted by the Jewish people or the Christian church as an authoritative one. It's not canon, but he's quoting from it. But it helps us to see who the Jewish people in between the Testaments and in the first century thought Michael was. And here we have in verse nine, but when the archangel Michael contended with the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a condemnation of slander against him, but said the Lord rebuke you. Now, what Jude is reflecting here is that the figure of Michael, who's called a chief prince, a first prince in the Hebrew Bible and Daniel, has been understood by Jude to be an archangel. Ark is the Greek really for the Hebrew first. So he's translating who Michael is in Daniel, the chief prince, as archangel, which literally means first messenger. So here we have Michael revealed as not human. At least that's what they thought. And it wasn't just them. He also appears in the book of Revelation. So if you have that Bible, very next book is Revelation. In chapter 12, we find this story. This is chapter 12, verse 1. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon who stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then they celebrate he was thrown down by the power of Christ. But it's Michael who battles there. 
to get him out. So that's that's pretty much the figure of Michael. And so the reading of the New Testament is that this is a spiritual battle in Daniel chapter 10, that the prince of Persia is a spiritual being, and that Michael is a spiritual being of the same sort. They're both called princes, but Michael is loyal to God and to Israel, and the prince of Persia is disloyal. That's what's going on. And when Gabriel said he was caught, it's very interesting that none of the other princes, however many there are, came to his aid, that only Michael was with him, which gives the impression in Daniel that all of the other princes of the nations, these spiritual beings, have sided with the serpent, have sided with Satan, and that only Michael, the spiritual being tasked with the leadership of Israel, he's the only one. Now, I think the best reading of who Michael is, is he's the angel of the Lord that we see in the book of Genesis, always coming to the patriarchs and so on. I think that's who he is. He's pretty much God's mouthpiece. We're told in the book of Hebrews that it is that the old covenant was mediated by angels. What that means is that most of the promises came through an angelic messenger, whether it was the angel in the burning bush. That's probably who Michael is. At least that seems to be the picture. Now, before I can go further, I know there's a problem. We live in a materialist culture here in the West, and we don't believe in spiritual realities. We believe that everything is material, that whether we're talking about energy or atoms or souls or consciousness, that all of this is uh, material in some way. It can be described in material terms. That is not the worldview of the scripture. So we talked a couple weeks ago about the collaboration between the serpent and the woman in the Garden of Eden. I want to say just a few more things about the Garden of Eden. In the ancient Near East, the gods were said to dwell in gardens. And they were usually on very high places, inaccessible places. And a lot of what I'm about to share with you comes from Michael Heiser in his book, The Unseen Realm. But most of them believe that the gods dwelt on these high places, these inaccessible mountains. And if you could ever get up there, um, you would find gardens, beautiful, beautiful gardens, full of fruit and plenty to eat. So I say all that to say that garden in the ancient Near East, where these his, this history and these stories found their origin, gardens are where gods dwell. It's where they have their meetings. It's where they make their decisions. It's the place on earth where the gods meet. So in any case, when God says that what he first made was a garden, this in Genesis, in the ancient Near East, that brings up a lot of images of a, a meeting place for the gods. And Genesis pushes that because not only is this a garden, but it's very high. Do you notice the story? There are four rivers that originate here and then go down. And then you're told what the other lands are like, where the rivers go. So where do rivers come from? They come from mountains. So Garden of Eden is kind of depicted as the mountain. And the major rivers of the ancient world come down from it. And this is where God creates humans. This is where he wants them to dwell. They're actually in the garden of God. And in that garden, you can expect some things in the ancient Near East. You can expect God to be there. You can expect other spiritual beings that God created to also be there as part of the divine council. And so the picture that we're given is that God is there. We're never really told about angels, but later Jewish speculation has always talked about angels being there. 
Um, and there's a book called, I think it's called The Life, might be in The Life of Moses, but I think it's called Life of Adam and Eve or something where they talk about angels being in the garden. So they always guessed that there were angels in the garden, which is reflected in the New Testament when Jesus is in a pseudo garden, but he's in the wilderness. It's not very lush. He doesn't have anything to eat. God loves to subvert all the expectations. He's in a wilderness, not a lush paradise. He's in a flat place, not a high place. He's being tormented by Satan rather than fed by God. But even there, he's nourished by angels. You might remember. So they're comparable things. And Paul will see that and say that Jesus is the new Adam. Right? I mean, that comparison is very clear. But the Garden of Eden is um, the meeting place. And what we're told, we're not told a lot. This is a very summarized story. But we're told God's there. We're told that humans were created to participate in the garden, that they were created to dwell there. And so what that tells us is that God's first, at least in the ancient Near East where this is written, that God intended humans to be a bridge of sorts between heaven and earth that they were part of the council, but they were of the earth, that they were supposed to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals on the ground, and all those creatures. And they're supposed to tend the earth and care for it. So they are kind of the superintendents of the earth, but they have access to the garden where God makes his decisions. They're part of the council. That's the point. And the serpent is there too. Now, this is not a biology lesson on snakes. This is the Nachash. This is the serpent. And he has a function. And so these are spiritual beings. They don't, so they're described as they're described. He's probably described as a serpent because of what comes next, but he's part of the council too. That's the point. He's there in the garden. And we talked last week about the tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil and so on. So what's happening in this story in the garden of Eden is that one of the beings that's part of the divine council, who we later will know as Satan, who is a spiritual being, he will conspire with one of God's human creations for whatever reason and convince them to violate the sacred law, that you have to be taught by God. You can't teach yourself. You can't just take knowledge. You have to wait for God to give it to you. He says, oh, we don't need to do that. And we talked about this last week. I won't get into it. And so they conspire. And what Revelation tells us is that eventually he's going to lose all access to this space, which lifts off the earth and enters the heavens, and now it's God's throne room. I mean, that's the way that the scriptures go. That's where the decisions are made. And he continues to have access. Humans are completely banned from it. We're cut off. Cherubim guard the gates. And that's a very familiar image for guardians in the ancient Near East who guard the, the throne room of God, the place of God. Cherubim, there we go. And so they lose their access completely. They're forced to live on the earth when they were intended to be this bridge. They become just of the earth. And to show that, God clothes them with skin. Like he almost strips them of that bridge-making ability and they become clothed in dirt. They become clothed in skin like anything else. Now, I'm not saying they weren't fleshly before. We know that they were. They were made from dust. But something more dust is piled on. They become more of the earth than they were. And then they're locked there. That's what happens. And they're forced to make their life on the earth without access. They no longer have a say in the divine council. God doesn't give them a say. But every now and again, God will invite a person to come and to join him in the council. And sometimes, like in the case of Moses or Abraham, he'll even invite them to be part of the decision-making process. This is a recovery of what humanity has lost, but he's never given it back to all humans, but he will give it back to some. 
at times. And the disciples are kind of like that. I mean, God and G the disciples and the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can't even miss the imagery that's going on there. It's really happening in real life, but it's also picking up all the images of the past. And so God's intention is that humans would reclaim their sacred birthright and they become part again of the council, co-rulers with Christ, who will be our king, God made flesh, ruling the earth as humans should and us under him. So that's the future. But this little conspiracy that began with the serpent and Eve has continued. And humans thrown out of Eden, what the scriptures tell us in those first 11 chapters of Genesis is that the conspiracy continues and that others join it. So we get a little detail here, and I've talked to you about this before. If you have Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. So this is a song written by Moses, but he tells us a little bit about the prehistory. And remember, Moses is the one traditionally who writes also Genesis. So Moses sort of knows what he's talking about here, at least in terms of the ancient Near East and what he believes he's trying to communicate. So in the Song of Moses, we talk about how God decided to distribute the nations. And this is what we find. It says, when the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the, now if you have an NIV or an old King James, it'll say the sons of Israel or the children of Israel. The new revised standard says, according to the number of the gods. That's a pretty big difference. Well, some of you will remember that Israel eventually, when they come into, um, when they come into Egypt, there are 70. Now the number of the nations is also 70 or 72 goes back and forth, Septuagint, Hebrew. So what it looks like, this is the Masoretic text that says sons of Israel. The oldest copies of that we have are about 1000 AD, about 1000 AD. And they say sons of Israel, but it looks like that was an alteration. The Septuagint, which we have copies from the 200s BC, says angels of God, according to the angels of God. And the texts of Deuteronomy that we found in Qumran, which are nearly 1,000 to 1,200 years older than the Masoretic text, they say sons of God, according to the sons of God. It looks like the Masoretes eventually changed it to sons of Israel because they wanted to get rid of the idea that there are other gods. But the original reading, and if you read any commentary, like I read Dwayne Christensen's commentary in the Word Biblical Commentary series this week, he opts for sons of God. And that's why Elohim are here. Who are the sons of God? Well, that goes back to Genesis chapter six. So you'll need to turn there. It's also in Job, but Job is reflecting an earlier tradition that's probably most likely encapsulated in, in Moses' song there and in Genesis six. I know this is like a lecture and that is what today is. If you don't want that, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to help you understand this text, and this is the only way I know how to do it. So in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we find these words. When the people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them, these were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. So these, who are the sons of God? Well, in Hebrew, sons of is a way of saying um, things or people that have the quality of. So if you are a son of perdition, some of you remember that in Thessalonians, it means that you are a person who is characterized by lawlessness, by perdition. So son of is a very common phrase. When you say son of God, you mean someone who has the qualities of God. Usually that's positive. You want to be a son of God because that means you share his character traits, his qualities. That's what it means in Hebrew anyway. But these people do not share his qualities. They're doing things with human females they shouldn't. So how in the world are they sons of God? Well, in the ancient Near East and in Jewish tradition, at least ancient Jewish tradition, they are spiritual beings. That's the way in which they share the qualities of God. These are angels. We call them angels. Technically, the word angel means messenger and is only used in the scripture to describe somebody bearing a message. But these are spiritual beings. In other passages, they'll be called Elohim. And it's beings like this that God is speaking to when he says, let us make man in our image. He's talking to his counsel. So what we're being told in Genesis 6, according to the culture of the ancient Near East, is that spiritual beings who had been assigned to the nations, that was Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, God distributed the nations according to the angels of God in the Septuagint, according to the sons of God according to the spiritual beings of his counsel. He allotted each one to a nation. Michael is the one he allotted to Israel when he chose Abraham. And some of them before the flood were joining the serpent. And this whole idea, they're spiritual beings, so they're probably not copulating with human females the way that we think of copulation. It seems when you read some of the ancient Near Eastern stuff and when you read the Sumerian stuff and when you read some of the stuff written by Jewish people in the intertestamental period, it seems mostly focused on knowledge. Mostly what they're doing is they're inseminating humans with knowledge and giving birth to people who live out of the knowledge they, they get from these things. So it's probably a euphemistic way of saying that they are impregnating humanity with knowledge that humanity couldn't otherwise have gotten, which is exactly what the serpent was doing. And through that knowledge, they built quite a civilization on earth, but it was violent and wicked and evil. And so God had to destroy it. And then at the Tower of Babel, after the flood, they try to do the same thing they had done before the flood, to use their accumulated wisdom to build a capital city of the earth and again to centralize humanity under one flag. But God interrupts their project. He's not going to let it get the way that it was in the flood. And then he chooses one person. What we're finding out in the book of Daniel, before the flood, those people were defeated. 
in Jewish tradition, they were put in prison, a spiritual type prison and held for the day of judgment. We don't know if that's true or not. It's not in the scriptures, uh, but there it is. But somehow, even after the flood, the spiritual beings that are in charge of the nations by the days of Daniel had all joined the serpent in rebelling against God. They had all joined him. And only Michael, only the prince of the people of Israel remained loyal and came to help a messenger sent from the throne room of God who was sent to deliver a message to Daniel. The prince of Persia is obviously in rebellion against God. He tries to stop it from getting there. He, he, he takes hold of, of Gabriel, but Michael comes and helps. And that's the picture we have in the book of Revelation that Satan has been joined by all the other leaders of the earth. And Michael alone is left to contend against them. And Michael wouldn't have won either, according to Revelation, if Jesus hadn't done what he had done, because it's by the blood of Christ that Michael and God's forces are able to overcome the forces of the evil one. So that's this big cosmic spiritual, and we just get a little glimpse of it in the book of Daniel, as we see that this battle is spiritual. And you'll notice Paul talks about this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is wrestling around with food offered to idols. And so he says this, this is verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist." So, and he says, it's not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. And since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So here it might sound, and I always read it this way as a kid, that Paul is saying, well, they think the idols are real things, but they're all false. There's nothing real, right? There's nothing real. And that would disqualify the spiritual supernatural worldview of the ancient Near East and the writers of the Old Testament, the First Testament. Is Paul saying, well, they're all wrong? Well, if he were saying that, then chapter 10 would make no sense. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he returns to the question of meat sacrificed to idols. This is chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul in chapter 8 says there's only one God. And then in chapter 10 says 
that those who worship idols worship demons. So what he is saying is there's only one true God, but there are many pretenders to be gods. You may say, well, what is a demon? Well, that's hard to say. We know that they're real spiritual beings. Jesus confronts them in the gospels primarily, and he casts them out. These are spiritual beings. Now, in the ancient Near East, the days of the First Testament, intertestamental period, book of First Enoch, demons are, the Nephilim are supposedly in that tradition, half-breeds of human and angel copulation, which I sort of dismissed a little bit, at least in a physical way. I think of that more in a spiritual way. Um, and the demons are the spirits of the Nephilim after their bodies died in the flood. They're released and they're floating around. Like that's demons for first Enoch. But Paul is doing something more similar to the First Testament prophets. When they use the term demon, they're talking about the being worshipped by pagan nations. These are most likely the princes who rebelled with the serpent against whom Michael and Gabriel were fighting. Those are demons. And that's why Paul, Paul's quoting really Isaiah here when he says, don't, when you sacrifice to an idol, don't you sacrifice to a demon. So again, we have these princes. If we put these pieces together, essentially what we have is that those who were tasked with leading nations of the earth under the leadership of God as members of the divine council slowly began to rebel and join Satan in his rebellion against God. And they conscripted humans to be part of the rebellion, which is what happened in the Garden of Eden and continued in the flood. And that project continued even after the flood. They continued to conspire with humans and they presented themselves to humans as gods, as creators, as equal to the God of Israel. And what Paul is saying is they're not actually gods. They are spiritual beings, but they're demons. They're more or less fallen. They are princes in rebellion against God, but they're nothing. I mean, they're nothing important when you sacrifice to them. You don't sacrifice to a rival of God. They're just created beings like anyone else. It's like sacrificing to another human. But they present themselves as gods. And the ancient people believed them to be gods and worshiped them as gods, which might have been part of the enticement to them to fall. Who knows? But Paul is telling us that there is only one true God. And those of us who might be tempted to worship idols, we can't do that because those are false gods. Those are actually spiritual beings in rebellion against God, and their fate is already sealed. One day they will be destroyed. Now, in that sermon I preached last fall, called Sons of God, I took that not just as the perspective of the, of the First Testament writers, but as an adequate representation of the spiritual reality in which we live. And I think that's the view of the New Testament, because at the end of Ephesians, and we've quoted this many times, Paul says our enemy is not actually against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual, against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. There are two rebellions going on. One is human and the other is spiritual, and they are conspiring together. So even though humans don't have eternal life, they die, the conspiracy continues through these spiritual beings that seem to be destined to live until they are judged, which will happen at the end. And so in the book of Daniel, we're given a glimpse into that world. And Daniel is told that this war actually interrupted Gabriel from coming to him and delayed the answer that he was fasting for 
So Daniel gets some real physical consequences of a spiritual reality going on. And then Gabriel tells him, after this, I've got to go back and I've got to help Michael. Because more or less the picture that's here is that Gabriel was sent from God's throne room to, he's an angel. He's bringing a message. He's bringing it to Daniel. But the prince of Persia intercepts him and imprisons him. And Michael comes and frees him. And he's able to escape to get to Daniel, but Michael's still fighting. And so once Gabriel delivers his message, he's going to go back and help Michael. That's the picture we have here. And it reveals to us that there is a spiritual reality. And so how I want to conclude, because obviously Gabriel has a lot to say, but the principle that we see drawn out of the book of Daniel is that though the nations change, though the faces change, the conspiracy is the same as Eden. And so one way that you could imagine the world in which we live, to get a PhD in education today, it's not sufficient like in theology, which is what I was looking into. It's not sufficient in theology to simply become an expert in some area of theology based on what the church has said about it. You have to contribute something. In order to get a PhD, you must find something new. You must say it in a way it hasn't been said, discover something that has not been articulated, or explain something that has been confused. You must contribute. The whole goal of education is novelty. It's newness. Same thing with science. We're looking for breakthroughs, new knowledge. What the scriptures seem to tell us is that that desperate attempt is the spiritual forces of evil trying to tap the tree of knowledge to learn enough to defeat God. To learn enough to build a kingdom on the earth that will be safe from God's edicts. And the spiritual forces of evil over time have had people all through history mining the earth for knowledge because they are convinced that buried in the earth is enough knowledge to get God off our backs, to be free of him. That is exactly what he said to Eve in the garden. If you eat of that tree, you will be like God knowing everything and he won't be able to touch you. That's the implication. And all of our society has been striving with the spiritual forces of evil to protect ourselves from God. The way Revelation says it is that they threw rocks on themselves to hide themselves from God. What you have to realize, people of God, for those who have ears to hear, is that we are in a cosmic battle that has been raging for longer than we can even imagine. And it's nearing a breaking point. We are nearing the days of Noah, and God promised he would never let it get to that again. He would never allow this conspiracy to get to the point where he would need to destroy all life again. So he is meddling. He meddled with Abraham. He meddled with Israel. He's meddled with the church. And he has salted the earth through us. But it's time for us to wake up. May the Lord open your ears and open your eyes.